Hello again, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Everyday Marksman Radio. I'm your host, Matt Robertson. On this podcast, we talk about tactical skills for an adventurous life. Very special episode for you today because it's the very first interview I've done for this podcast. Our guest is John Simpson, who is a veritable encyclopedia of precision shooting and sniper knowledge. I'll get to his background in a moment, but I want to let you know a little bit more background between me and John, or John and I. You see, I've been following John's work through other blogs for quite a while, and he's always that guy who chimes in in the comments with some bit of knowledge that you kind of have to go, huh, I didn't know that. So he is that guy, and he most recently wrote a new book, which I reviewed on our own website. A couple things before I get into today's episode. Number one, if you're pressed for time, go ahead and jump to the last 10 minutes or so, and I'll throw out some of my summary and takeaways. Number two, if you're new to the podcast, please go ahead and hit subscribe, leave me a review doesn't have to be five stars. I value honesty, and I really do want to improve on things. And also, don't forget to come by our website, everydaymarksman.co, and subscribe. If you want to check out the show notes for this episode, go ahead and check out everydaymarksman.co slash John. Once again, that's everydaymarksman.co slash John. That gets you all the show notes, all the nice pictures I'm going to throw out there, as well as links to resources we can get to. All right. On that note, let's get to it. Our guest today got his start as a member of the Army Special Forces Groups. He taught his first sniper school course in 1985 and his first law enforcement course in 1986. He spent five years teaching sniper to Special Forces troops at Special Warfare Center at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, three years at Charlie Company in Germany as a team sniper and ultimately as the company master sniper, and two years as chief instructor of the 10th Special Forces Group Sniper Committee at Fort Devens, Massachusetts. While at Fort Devens, He trained police snipers in New York and Ohio as part of Project North Star. Since his retirement from the Army in 1994, he's continued to train police and military snipers around the country. He's the author of The Sniper's Notebook, which is on the recommended reading list of the 2017 edition of the Army Sniper Manual, and also contributed chapters to The Wind Book by Linda Miller and Keith Cunningham, as well as American Sniper Association's Sniper Operations and and Training Manual. He most recently published another book, The Foundations of Sniper Marksmanship, which I reviewed here at the Everyday Marksman. So I'm very excited to have him on the show. Everybody welcome John Simpson. John, welcome. Well, thank you very much. Um, that's a very nice nice bio we have, but you know, kind of the first thing I'd like to ask is, uh, tell us a little bit more about your background and kind of how you got from uh, starting, starting off in the Special Forces Sniper to all the book, all the writing you're doing and everything in the background that people might not know about. If you don't mind the, the boring details, um, I, I enlisted in the Army in 77, which was, uh, uh, and I enlisted in Special Forces, which was quite a gut check, because at that time, there was talk in the Carter administration about disbanding Special Forces. So uh, as we were going through training, there was a whole bunch of us that figured we were going to wind up as the most highly qualified privates in the 82nd Airborne Division. But you know, fortunately, that didn't come to pass. So I wound up going to Fort Devens, and I originally started out as a uh, Special Forces light weapons uh, leader. Uh, I joined SF when SF wasn't cool. So uh, it was it was really a backwater. We didn't have any money. We didn't have very many resources. This is going to make sense later, but one of the advantages I had being at Fort Devens, Massachusetts, was that 
I found out that right down I-90 in Springfield, Massachusetts, was the Smith & Wesson factory. And they had opened up what they called the Smith & Wesson Academy, which is primarily for training police officers. Now, at that time, uh, weapons guys, and especially light weapons guys, were, were low man on the totem pole. And there was like no advanced training. If you were demolitions, there was an advanced class. If you were a medic, there was an event, you know, so on. What I wound up doing was, is uh, I, uh, I, I took three weeks leave and I paid the tuition myself. And I, uh, I went to Springfield, Massachusetts to the Smith and Weston Academy and I enrolled in their, their firearms instructor program, which was their, you know, primarily their police firearms instructor program. Completely changed my life because here was a way of looking at things you you just didn't see in the military. So basically, it's like I um, I graduated their program and I liked what I saw. Here was a group of people that if you know you you train somebody wrong in in using a handgun, they go out on the street, they wound up getting shot, and you find out about it immediately. So it was it was a big period of change in, in law enforcement. So that gave me a that gave me a really different approach to um, uh, to to looking at the job of training people in weapons that I tried to bring back to the army. Because you have to understand, at this period of time, when I say we didn't have much money, I mean it was you know basically marksmanship. What they called marksmanship training was you know you would go to the range every year whether you needed to or not for one day and you would like get nine rounds to zero and 40 rounds to record fire it was actually much later that i i learned the best way to express what was wrong with that and that was from my uh friend and colleague derek bartlett because uh his his opinion on you know counting record fire as training is uh you don't take a geography uh uh, you don't take a geometry test to learn geometry. And you, you know, so you don't fire a record fire to learn marksmanship. So fast forward a number of years, um, I wound up, you know, breaking my femur in a Jeep accident. I was going from one desk job to another, and they had me, they had me running the group message center in headquarters company, which is as bad as it sounds. You know, when I re-enlisted, I, it's like I had to get out of there, and I transferred to the Special Warfare Center at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, which is the big schoolhouse for Special Forces. So they're, they're trying to, you know, put me into a job. And, you know, one of, the, one of the biggest problems that we have in the culture of the Army is that a lot of the instructors, uh, basically instructors are looked down on as people that weren't smart enough to get out of an instructor assignment. Whereas what I've noticed in, you know, organizations like the Marine Corps, we're going to see if you're good enough to be an instructor to train the next generation of people coming up. So it's. Yeah, I'm curious if you don't mind, I have a, a question on that, because I was, a, you know, I was an Air Force instructor in a different career field. But um, so that's interesting. Is that, is that still the case today? Uh, the guys that I'm most familiar with are the instructors at the, uh, the army sniper school at Fort Benning, Georgia. And I got to tell you from everything that I've seen with those guys, um, 
Those guys are good at what they do. They want to be there and they're, you know, I mean, they're, they're constantly trying to do their jobs better. Right. Right. You know, your students have to be able to trust their training. And, um, you know, from, from what, from the guys that I've, from the guys that I've worked with at Fort Benning, um, they, uh, they make that a reality. Okay. That's, that's really awesome to hear. So what kind of follow-up question I had in there was, I just want to make sure we have definitions, right? Uh, you said you were light weapons. So for guys who don't know military jargon, kind of what does that mean? Uh, light weapons, a uh, light weapons leader. When I went through, everybody went through the same weapons course. It was, um, uh, so in, in 78, when I went through the Q Corps, the special forces qualification course or Q course, we had four weeks of phase one at Camp McCall. We had, um, for my MOS, we had eight weeks of, uh, what was called MOS training. And then you had four weeks of what was called phase three, which was your, uh, guerrilla warfare training. And phase one was, phase one was, um, uh, survival and, uh, patrolling and a lot of land navigation and then finished up with a, uh, patrol field training exercise. Okay. And then, um, uh, a lot for weapons, that was eight weeks of mostly classroom where we, we covered everything from, uh, pistols from all around the world. And so we would go pistols, submachine guns, uh, rifles, automatic rifles, light machine guns, heavy machine guns, and, um, and so on. And then for the heavy weapons portion, that was everything that was either a large caliber direct fire weapon or an indirect fire weapon. So that was, um, heavy weapons were recoilless rifles, uh, rocket launchers, um, mortars for 60 millimeter 81 millimeter and 4.2 and then we learned the forward observer procedures and the fire direction center procedures okay and um and there was a lot of uh uh and like i said i mean there were there was a lot of classroom i mean just a whole lot of tests i mean they had um in light weapons they had one where um one of the one of the final tests that you had to do was called the scramble, which they still do today. And what they would do is, is they the instructors would disassemble three weapons and dump them into a pile on in front of each student. And then in a certain amount of time, they had to reassemble, separate and reassemble uh, three operating weapons out of that. Was it always the same weapons or is it kind of at, at the instructor's choice? Uh, it, it, well, it, it depended on how annoyed the instructors were with the class. Okay. <laughs> I mean, if they like you, it would be, um, something like the, the M2 carbine, um, uh, the M1911 pistol and, um, an M14. Okay. But if they didn't like you, they would give you something like uh, one of the ones that they would always include would be the trigger group from a Browning automatic rifle, hmm. uh, because that, that has like a bazillion parts in it. it that, that one was quite a challenge. Um, it, it was just amazing for, for something that worked so well in world war two, uh, when we did the class on the Browning automatic rifle, it was just like, um, uh, the, the class leader stood up in class and told the instructor, he says, you know, when David, when David slew Goliath, he just did it with a rock and a piece of string. And John Browning took like, you know, 
95 parts to launch a bullet down range. <laughs> okay. So yeah, and then when you get you you finish all that and you get to phase 3 and uh you that's that's when you get into uh guerrilla warfare and um planning and things like that. So I'm going to kind of pivot to talking about the book. So under the latest book, uh, The Foundations of Sniper Marksmanship is not uh, it's like a it's an updated version of a previous book that you had. Correct. But I don't know what had a print with Paladin Press. Correct. So um, I know you put this out in the intro, but for the audience, kind of, what was the, the, the impetus to, to write this book? Okay, so um, we're going on 20 years now. I've been fortunate enough to be affiliated with a, uh, a training company called Snipercraft. And the guy in charge of it, Derek Bartlett, is one of the central figures in police sniping in this country, if not the world, okay? It turned out that when we finally met at a we met at a training conference that we were both speaking at in 1998, and it was one of these things where, you know, we both heard about each other but we'd never met, and it so happened that we were coming in, uh, we were uh, we arrived at the airport at the same time. It was like, hey, you know, you want to grab something to eat, and we got to talking and found out that, uh, you know, we we actually had um, uh, a great deal in common. We just had different ways of getting there. Snipercraft runs police sniper classes all around the country. Derek has the stable of adjunct instructors where if he's operating in a certain part of the country, he goes there as the primary and then, uh, you know, he, he calls up one of us. So over the years, I got to, you know, I, I got to train a number of police snipers. And one of the things that I noticed was the approach to training, you know, people ask me, people ask me all the time, what's the difference between military and police snipers? And the, the issue is like too in-depth to go into here. But one of the things that stood out for me was, is that the training strategies for each are, you know, they're, they're like backwards. When I was working as a military sniper instructor, every student that showed up, had, you know, he'd been trained and qualified in at least basic rifle marksmanship when he left basic training. Then when he shows up at sniper school, mm -hmm. it's anywhere from, you know, six to eight to 13 weeks long, and they're able to build on the basic rifle marksmanship that they, you know, that they showed up with. I noticed with uh, police classes, the only thing that you could guarantee a police officer getting trained on at the academy is a handgun. And then when they show up for sniper school, their sniper school is only five days long or like 40 hours. And they're the ones that need the most development and training in, you know, just basic rifle marksmanship. So this was really driven home for me a number of years ago because I was, uh, I was helping Derek out at a, uh, uh, at a class held at a at an agency somewhere in the southeast United States, and I saw that uh, there were a couple of teams. So they, I saw these guys, and they were they initially started shooting. And if you can picture this, um, you know, if, if you imagine, you know, the the small, you know, what I call the small, what's called the small of the stock, you know, which is the you know the curve portion behind the trigger. I saw guys that were holding on to that with both hands like it was a handgun grip. Wow. 
So it was one of these things where I was just like, you know, there, there's got to be a way, you know, make sure that these guys show up with some kind of baseline knowledge. The reason, you know, you, you mentioned the sniper's notebook in the intro. The reason I wrote that, uh, that, that was published back in 2010. You know, I, I'm constant, I constantly had to point out mistakes that are in other sniper books and sniper manuals. And people just kept on going, well, you know, if everything is so bad, why don't you write your own? So, you know, I did. You know, it's just, it's just amazing some of the nonsense that persists in, in the sniper community. I mean, it's, you know, it, it, it's absolutely ridiculous. So I, when I came up with the idea, you know, to do this new book, which was, you know, would basically go, here's a book, you know, if a, if a sniper team leader has like, three guys show up for the job and he's got he's got the he's got the funds to send one guy to a police sniper school what i was hoping was is that for the you know for the cost of three books he could like give one to each of these guys tell them okay go ahead study this on your own and then in about you know three weeks we're you know you'll meet up with the rest of the team on the range next time we do our in-service training and then we'll go through the live fire stuff with you. Mm -hmm. And what you would see with that is, is you find out the guys who, uh, you know, want this job bad enough to show initiative in going ahead and, you know, reading this book. And they're doing it without having to have, you know, somebody in the chain of command standing over their shoulder going, hey, did you read your, you know, you know, how right. many pages did you read today? Right, right. Okay, because that's the kind of person that you want to have as a sniper. And um, I, I, I think I succeeded with it. Yeah. So, um, you know, as you know, I, I recently reviewed it on the site. And one of the things I really appreciated about it, uh, you know, uh, I, I have an analogy I like to use for something like Clausewitz. You know, uh, when you read On War, it's a very theoretical, high level, like, oh, this is the ideal situation. But then it's never, you know, war doesn't work that way. Yeah. And then you have, you know, somebody like Mulkey, you know, another general kind of a protege who writes from perspective of, well, this is really what works. Right. And I kind of feel like reading through, reading through your book, it kind of had that aspect. You know, I can go read, you know, 32210, which actually has gotten a lot better, <laughs> but. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I, that, it, cause I, I know the guy that, um, uh, I, I know the NCO that was, uh, that was in charge of writing that. And, uh, it, it'd be difficult to find a more switched on individual than him. Your book is kind of a much more you you can look at the uh, field manual, like okay, here's how the field manual says it, but you break it down in a way that just makes sense for this is what's really going to work, which I appreciated. Yeah, because basically, you know, what I do, you know, and and Derek has accused me of this. It's like he says that I look at everything in terms of sniping. Okay, you know, I'll uh, I'll you know I'll, I'll see a movie or I'll, I'll read some book. The last one that brought that out that brought that up was uh, I was reading. Um, uh, you know, Captain Chesley Sullenberger, the, you know, the guy who did the mirror, you know, the pilot that, you know, did the miracle on the Hudson. Right. And I was like reading his book and I'm going, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in here for a sniper. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for the most part, there's this whole mysticism about military sniping. And I, you know, I do my best to like try and, you know, it, try and debunk that, you know, because it's like, I'll go, you know what? If we were talking, you know, 
if we were talking about jump school, you know, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. In a lot of military sniper schools that I've seen, you know, it, it's a case of, well, you know, I mean, you know, hey, you know, find out what works for you and, you know, all this other stuff. And it's like actual what we call what we know of sniping goes back to World War One. OK, people have been doing this for a long time. You know, when you only have a finite number of weeks to train these people, uh, you know, you assume that, you know, they're attending the school because they don't know anything about the subject. I mean, why are you leaving it up to them to reinvent the wheel? Right. OK. My favorite example is jump school. You show up at, you know, you show up at, you know, Army Jump School at Fort Benning, Georgia to learn how to parachute out of a perfectly good airplane. You know, basically it's like, okay, here, you've never done this before, but, you know, we've been refining this since World War II. One of the things you'll notice in my book is, is like in the position shooting, I have the positions broken down to points of performance, which is the exact same term that's used at jump school. Mm-hmm. So instead of going, well, you know, you know, do this, don't do this, or, you know, hey, you know, find your own way. It's like, okay, here's the points of performance. This is what I'm going to grade you on. When you meet these points of performance, you'll have successfully performed it. If you miss any points of performance, that's what you need to work on in order for you to be, succeed at this. So, you know, there, there's no mysticism. And it's like, you know, people come in. They learn, they get trained, they go out. It's an interesting way to do it because uh, it's a very military way to do it because I was trained the same way. And you know, now that I'm out of the military, I still train that where yeah. you know, I implemented, here's a checklist of in order to pass this, this assessment, objective statements of did you do this or did you not? Did you do this yeah. or did you not? And you have to pass X number of, assess- of points to pass the, pass the assessment. Exactly. You know, So it's like here, this is what success looks like. And I don't, you know, and um, uh, I don't know if you remember from the book, but one of the things that I've gotten away from is going back to the first edition of the book. I don't show examples of how not to do things. Mm-hmm. You know, cognitive research has shown that if you demonstrate the wrong way to do something, even though you're telling people now don't do it that way, basically. It fires the motor neurons in their brain just the same way as if they're practicing it wrong. You know, instead of spending so much energy on showing, hey, this is wrong. Don't do it this way. It's just like, hey, this is the right way. Do it this way and you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. It's interesting uh, because Lanny Basham in his book, uh, With Winning in Mind, says something very similar where you should spend your time looking at people and hanging out with people who do things the right way and exactly. kind of mirror you to do the right thing. Exactly. You know, going back to the military example, you know, when I was in jump school, we didn't spend a lot of time having, de- you know, having people demonstrate to us the wrong way to fall. So, so one thing I'm, uh, I wanted to kind of point out, I thought was really cool in the book was uh, you mentioned before, like not reinventing the wheel. And one of the things in the book that you did is the diagrams you have for those positions is right out of the, I think it was late 1800s shooting manual showing that this, this hasn't changed really. Yes. You know, in over a hundred years, yes. why are we reinventing things? In my, yeah, in my library, I'm fortunate enough. Don't ask me how much, it cost. I mean, I spent, I spend way too much on this stuff, but the thing is, it's like one of the things on, um, uh, one of the examples that I took from, uh, that I took from Bruce Lee was the maintenance of a library. And um, I 
if I do say so myself, I have a actual, I actually have a rather extensive library on, you know, sniping and weapons and a whole bunch of other subjects. And I was fortunate enough years ago to pick up an original copy of uh, the 1889 Small Arms Firing Manual by Stanhope Blunt. Basically, uh, when I, I picked this up, um, it was something like 10 or 15 years ago. So it was one of these deals where, you know, I'm holding this book on rifle marksmanship that's over 100 years old. And when you look at it, you know, those line drawings that are in the foundations of sniper marksmanship are actually direct scans from that manual. And I basically did that because too often I, I see, you know, insecure instructors that are just, you know, they're, they're the ones that are promoting this idea of, hey, you know, you know, do your own thing or, you know, I'm not saying that we can't improve things and I'm not saying that we can't advance. You're going to hear a lot of this. One, another one of Simpson's laws is, uh, you know, basically you have to master what you want to replace. And this is one of the reasons why I study history so much. Because, you know, looking at these illustrations, I just want people to keep in mind when you're trying to come up with some kind of new rifle position, you know, or you're trying to improve what I'm teaching you, just keep in mind, people have been doing this for an extremely long time. And, you know, the weapons change and the uniforms change and the mission, you know, but the thing is, it's like, you know, here's these illustrations from 1889. And if you look at people on, you know, Olympic rifle teams or, you know, the, the Army marksmanship unit, you find them doing the exact same positions today. Mm -hmm. It works. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, it's like, you know, there, there's a reason for it. And, um, there was, uh, one of the things that, one of the things that prompted that there was, um, let's just say the service, the service shall remain nameless, but basically there was a photograph taken from the back of, uh, you know, the, the NCOIC or non-commissioned officer in charge of a military sniper school. And the guy was like, laid out flat on the ground and he had his legs pressed together and his um it's like his toes were pressed together i mean it was like the the weirdest prone position you know and they were like yeah you know and this is sergeant so-and-so's unique take on the prone position <laughs> and it was just like you know you know one of the reasons for the prone position that i teach being the way it is is there's there's body mechanics that make it you know make it a lot more stable position and you know when you're doing stuff like that it's like I, I i just don't see any sense in it right um so kind of going down the point because you know this has been around for a long time um you know in the run-up to this we had a couple email exchanges and, and one of the things you said which uh you know was right at my alley and peaked my ears up was that you think that it's the responsibility of every American to learn marksmanship. Now, I'm kind of wanting to learn more about why, where that came from. You know, I, I'm not going to get into the whole, uh, you know, militia and national guard thing, but you know, you know, basically in, in article two of the constitution, it, you know, it, it identifies 
you know, at the founding of the country, you know, basically every male from this year, you know, from this age to this age was a member of the militia, whether he wanted to be or not. And, uh, you know, and that's why the, the president is the uh, uh, commander in chief of the army, the navy and, and the militia. You know, it, it's an old school idea. I'm I'm a firm believer that, you know, part of the, you know, part of the culture of the United States is, you know, it, it, it's based on it, it. It's based on firearms. Firearms is how we won our freedom from England and firearms are how we've, you know, defended our country in the past. And we've, uh, you know, we've enforced, you know, foreign policy. And when you look at it, the uh, the military used to be, you know, prior, you know, prior to the uh, National Security Act of 1947, the original strategy was, you know, we weren't supposed to have a, you know, the founding fathers were against standing armies, right? Because hey, you know, they, you know, they they caused they caused a nuisance, they cost a lot of money, uh, you know, just to, you know to pay them and feed them and, you know, clothe them and house them and train them. So the thing is, it's like you had a, you know, essentially you had a, an army that, that consisted of just, you know, essentially cadres, you know, it was just a skeleton of a much larger army until war was declared. And then for any, uh, you know, for any contingencies, you had a standing U S Marine Corps. That was, you know, and when you look at it, that was one of the reasons why the army is always trying to, um, you know, especially after World War II, they were always trying to come up with faster ways to train people in rifle marksmanship. And you would see the Marine Corps persisting in using, you know, known distance position shooting as the basis for, uh, you know, their, their record fire for the longest time because they were essentially trying to create a core of small arms experts. You know, one of the functions of the NRA was to have these service rifle matches so that, you know, on, you know, on the weekends and, you know, a couple times throughout the year, you know, Joe taxpayer would be able to, uh, you know, take his rifle, you know, shoot some of the rust out of the barrel, and he would develop basic rifle marksmanship skills. Do you think that's kind of fallen to the? Uh, oh yeah, the, yeah, for sure, CM, for sure. Or, but like, the thing is, you still, but you still see the civilian marksmanship pro. You know, right. that's one of the that's one of the functions of the civilian marksmanship program, where hey, you know, you know, meet these criteria. We're going to we're going to make available to you an M1 Garand. You know, you can you can go ahead and and train on this. One of the big debates was uh, that went on after World War II in the Truman administration was this thing called universal military training, which um, I mean, if if you wanted to give half of the politicians in office now a heart attack, you should just bring up universal universal military training again because this was this was like. Um, Rifle marksmanship instruction was supposed to start in high school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that would be people heart attack these days. I mean, just to, you know, just to provide a, 
a capability that you you hope is never used to provide for the common defense. So, right. you know, basically, you know, we're still, you know, people are still required to register for selective service. There's a possibility that, you know, things could get bad enough that, you know, people begin to get drafted again or called up again. And the thing is, they're just like the problem that the police are, are facing. You know, it turns out that, uh, you know, when you need people downrange fast, there just isn't enough try time to give them all of the training that they need. Mm -hmm. You know, basically, uh, I mean, fortunately, fortunately, rifle marksmanship in the Army has been, uh, you know, it, 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 it's been expanded again. But I have uh, I have no doubt that uh, that's that's going to go the way of the dodo eventually, because you just don't have you just don't have the culture for it. Uh, it's it's almost like you don't have the the stomach for it in the army, which I, I realize is a weird thing to say, but um, it's it, it, it's a problem. It's a problem that goes. Uh, trust me, it's, it's a problem that goes back to like the eighteen hundreds. Right. No. So one of the things you mentioned was that you know the idea was that every citizen would be ready, so that if you got drafted, you you probably if you participated in competition, then you had that that at least that basic requisite skill, right? Correct. Uh, but then, but then, uh, how does that go in today? Because I feel like, if I'm being honest about kind of modern, you know, gun cultures, a lot of people kind of focus so much on what's in your safe if you even have a safe these days. That people neglect things like how is your physical fitness doing? Oh, exactly. That's a big part of the book as well. You know, I wrote the original text. I, I got turned down. I got turned down by my first choice. Uh, the people at Paladin Press uh, were nice enough to uh, uh, publish the book. Unfortunately, they made a number of editorial changes that I didn't agree with. You know, first of all, the title. The title was never supposed to be Snipercraft because that's the that's the registered trademark of Snipercraft Incorporated. Uh, you know, which is owned by Derek Bartlett. Fortunately, he was he was kind enough to allow me to use the Snipercraft trademark. You know, basically, it was just like, well, you know, we can't, uh, uh, we don't publish stuff with basic levels, so you know, you, you gotta, you know, you gotta call it advanced training. It's like, dude, I mean, I'm basically going, hey, this is a rifle, okay? The bullet comes out of this end. I mean, how advanced do you think that is? So, uh, Paladin Press goes out of they go out of business a while back. You know, I've got the, I've got the manuscript, you know, they were, they were nice enough to give me the, um, the, the PDF files in order to print more. So I found this public, this publisher, uh, called loose leaf law publishing. Fantastic group of people. They do, um, they primarily do, uh, books for police. Got a really smart editor. So I was I was working with um, uh, I was working with Carrie Falco, and uh, really really nice woman. And one of the benefits of that was is you know I had to I had to you know she would like ask a question about something in the text, and then I had to explain it to her, and you know she had no background in firearms, so that was actually one of the more useful uh, things that that developed from this process. So and so while going through the so going while going through the manuscript while going through the paladin version I found out that they had introduced like three typos 
that weren't in the original manuscript. Hmm. So I was, I was kind of uh, glad I was able to fix those, but it was one of these deals where, um, the vice president of loose leaf, uh, Mary Lawfrey, she, uh, she basically said, look, you know, we don't want to just reprint this, this book. Would you be interested in doing an updated version of it? And it was like, that was, that was music to my ears. <laughs> okay. Because that was exactly what I wanted to do because in the intervening years, it's always one of these things where, you know, I kind of wish I'd included this and boy, you know, I wish I'd gotten rid of this. So I had the opportunity to do, do that. And one of the things that I added was the uh, section that you like so much on the sniper functional fitness test. Mm -hmm. Now, the story of that, uh, if, uh, if you ever see a, um, if you ever see a sniper craft class in action, one of the things that, one of the things that Derek insists upon is that, you know, this is a very physical job. Because you're carrying all this gear, you're trying to climb over a chain link fence and, you know, passing stuff over it. You're running up three flights of stairs to get to a particular floor in time. So, it's a very physical job. Several years ago, uh, I, get this, uh, I get this phone call from Derek. He just taught a class. Basically, he had guys that were... Uh, uh, he couldn't perform the courses of fire that required them to run, you know, to do, you know, to run and do push-ups before they, before they fire the shot. Okay. Because when you're getting ready to shoot somebody for real, you know, you're, you're, you know, your heart is racing and, you know, you're short of breath and it all comes down to a measure of what physical capacity do you have left to bring to the job? Mm-hmm. So he goes, I want to come up with a PT test. I want to, I want to give a PT test in the school. So uh, we put our heads together, and over a period of several months, we came up with the, uh, the sniper functional fitness test. So we set this up, and uh, when, we came up with the score, when we came up with the scoring system, uh, we, we had like uh, three classes that we administered the test to, and we just told everybody, do the best you can. And from there, I, I took all those numbers, and um, I, I did a, uh, basically, I did a statistical analysis of it. And uh, if there's any stati- statisticians in the office, I, I came up with a Z-score for, you know, for the data. And I was able to convert everything into points on a, you know, on a chart. Derek started doing it, and uh, it's it's diagnostic in his basic class, and it's a must-pass in the advanced class. And we've we've gotten fantastic results from it. Because oh, awesome. it actually, you know, it you know it, it tests the it tests the functional areas of you know what you have to be able to bring to the table when you're going on a call out. Right. Okay. I noticed, I, I saw a video on, uh, on Instagram, uh, I guess from sniper week, which had a, had a bunch of people running back and forth. And I guess that's part of the assessment, but I know sniper week's kind of a bit of a competition, right? 
Yes, Sniper Sniper Week. Well, Sniper Week is a training. First of all, Sniper Week is a training event. So it's four days in April in uh, Clearwater, Florida. The first two days are a conference where you have um, uh, speakers come in, and the speakers will either give technical briefings or they'll give case studies. And the case studies are basically a police sniper that had to had to resolve a situation with sniper fire is standing up there in front of you showing slides from the crime scene with everything leading up to and uh, afterwards. So um, there's there's been a number of stories there that like raise the hairs on the back of your neck. Mm-hmm. After the uh, after the two days conference. Then we spend two days going through uh, various courses of fire, and for the most part, they're all based off of uh, they're all based off of real world incidents. So it's it's all it, you know extremely relevant, but it, it's also extremely physical. So the guys are doing you know a certain number of hand release push ups before going into a uh, prone unsupported position, and you know, that's where you find out the guys that are able to hold the rifle steady after they've done, you know, X number of hand release pushups. And, you know, you, you run into all kinds of people that they, they had no idea that they had to do anything physical. See, one of the things that, uh, the reason for the, um, one of the things that Snipercraft fights against is this idea that, well, when you're too, uh, you know, when you're too slow and fat to kick doors in on the assault team, uh, we're going to uh, take away your black nylon and send you up to the sniper element. I think you might have just burst the bubble of a lot of people who envisioned themselves as sitting on their front porch with a sniper rifle. Uh, when I first started working for Sniper Week, we did a uh, we did a class somewhere in South Georgia, and that was when. Uh, Basically, that's when an incident happened that was called Black Thursday. You know, you can get an idea from the courses of fire that are in uh, the latest book. You know, he had, uh, you know, he had people doing, you know, guerrilla bullseyes where they, uh, you know, they're, you know, they're basically doing, uh, doing a set period of physical activity in between every shot. And this just goes on and on for the entire thing. So it was uh, it was summer in South Georgia, and the range we were in. Imagine it. Well, it was actually at an air force. Uh, it was on an air force base. The range was located in in what's best described as a bowl. So okay. all of this heat was like compressed in there. You know. So long story short, three guys decided to sit it out. We had one guy that had to go to the hospital for heat stroke. And then we had another guy that, you know, when everything was said and done, we're, we're securing for the day. And this, you know, he was, uh, he was an older gent. He like came up, he, he like came up to, uh, where we were, where the instructors were standing. And he said, I, you know, I just want to let you know, I'm not going to be in class tomorrow because tomorrow morning I'm going to be in front of the captain returning my rifle because I had, no idea that this is what it took to be a police sniper and Hmm. this guy had you know this guy had you know he'd he'd been like the he'd been the department sniper for you know something like you know 
five or ten years, something like that. But his idea of sniper training was he would like, you know, he'd go to the range, he'd set up on a bench, he'd fire some five shot groups, and then secure for the day. People think of people think of going to the range as an end in itself. You're training on the range for a purpose that's down the road where you're going to be, you know, you're going to be shooting at non-cooperative targets. So one example one of the things that makes this sniper marksmanship is, you know, in one of the points of performance on the on the prone position is making sure that your heels are down. Because I can't tell you how many times I see in photographs that are published where people are in the prone position and they're, you know, they're balanced on their toes for some reason. And it's a case of, well, you're, first of all, you know, from a marksmanship point of view, you're using a... You know, you're using muscular tension to keep your heels in the air. And believe it or not, that actually translates into how you're holding the gun. But the other thing is, and the, the sniper-based thing is, is that, you know, you've got your heels up when they don't have to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first rule of being a sniper is to be sneaky. Being sneaky as a sniper comes first before everything else. And it sounds like a small thing, but, you know, it's, um, you know, basically, you know, survival is made up of a whole bunch of small things to add up to one large thing. Ooh, that's a, that's a, that's a quote right there. I really like that. It's, it's just so true, right? Uh, there's so much, there's so many skills that go into your, your survivability in any situation. And it's not just right. Because the thing is, it's like, it, I, I mean, when I was, when I was at the Fort Devon school, um, I had a conversation with the NCOIC and, uh, it was one of these things where, um, he and I used to go back and forth all the time because he had this philosophy of, well, you know, there's a thousand ways to do everything and none of them are wrong. And I was just like, I can't believe a master sergeant in the U.S. Army just said that. I mean, just because this is a sniper school doesn't mean that it's, you know, it's not part of the Army anymore. You know, now I'm not saying everything is in rigid lock stack. I mean, yeah, there's, you know, you know, there's a number of different ways to approach, you know, a job, you know, but like in the case of points of performance. You know, because I go, look, you know, once again, I mean, if we were instructors at the airborne school, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Right. All right. Because it's like here, when you do a parachute landing fall, this is the way you're going to do it. Because believe me, since the 1930s, we've tried other ways and this one works best. (laughs) So I know we're going to start running out of time soon, but uh, if you don't mind, it's a couple more questions I wanted to get through. Um, so one of the ones actually that, that came up was, uh, you know, you ran a sniper school, you put that, that curriculum together and I, I kind of want to key off of something you mentioned about all these little skills that build up. So, you know, for anybody who's not familiar with this difference is like, you know, being a sniper and I say this to someone who's not, I just, I can read books, but being a sniper is about more than just the shooting piece of it. Yeah. So what, what other skills are there besides just good marksmanship that go into, you know, being a sniper? Well, the, the biggest thing I have the biggest thing I have to correct people on is there's a there's a there's a bunch of ignorant people out there that think that sniper is some level of marksmanship qualification. That's like saying that being a SEAL is a level of physical fitness. You know, I break it down to 
the you know the sniper's first obligation is to be sneaky because if you get if you aren't being sneaky you're not a sniper the second one is he has to be able to observe what's going on and the third one of course is he has to be able to shoot so all of the skill set falls within those three uh within those three tasks and then uh each one each one feeds off of the previous one Okay, because it's like no matter how well a person shoots, if he's doing something that attracts attention to himself, you know, like heels in the air, then he's not being sneaky and sneaky is the overriding priority. And in that you mentioned observation. Uh, I know I I saw a quote you had talking about uh, Kim's game, which uh, I'll admit, having had read the articles and then saw everything I did. So everybody always has a perception that Kim's game means keep in mind. And I will admit I did the, I said the exact same thing for years until, until you kind of issued the correction on that. Um, so I had no idea it came from Kipling though. Oh yes. Yes. Uh, basically, um, uh, this, this is it. Now this is an example of instructors that don't know what they're, te- they don't know what they're teaching, but the current generation, this is what they were taught and they keep on teaching it and they don't know why they're teaching it. But it can all be very easily resolved. Um, Rudyard Kipling wrote a novel about uh, uh, colonial India called Kim. And when you, uh, you know, when you read through it, you know, it's talking about a young orphan named Kim O'Hara, who's recruited by the British Secret Service, you know, to to fight rebels. And uh, he's trained as a scout and a messenger. And he is introduced to what's called the play of the jewels in the book and uh a man by the name of lurgan comes out with a tray of jewels with a cover over it pulls it away covers it again eventually kim has to learn how to uh remember from a glance just what was on the tray and um you know and what the value of each one was you know and i tell people i said look don't take my word for anything so what you do is you can find it online, like at the Internet Archive or whatever, but just Google the 1908 Scout Handbook by Baden-Powell. And you can, you, know, you can either download it or read it online. And when you look at activities for Boy Scouts in 1908, there are the instructions for how to play Kim's game. Oh, definitely. I'll go look that up and I'll definitely put it in the show notes for this, for this uh, episode. So thank you for pointing that one out. Yeah. Now, uh, along with that, we did mention that, you know, I've seen uh, something related to this. You know, I was part of a competition in 2010 uh, in the nuclear business and I was on one side of it and I had a bunch of security forces guys on another side and we got to watch them compete and they had to run an obstacle course and they went to a tent where they couldn't say anything, but they were in there for one minute then they had to finish this obstacle course, which was like another three-mile run and then you know more stuff and stuff in first aid and on and on and on. But at the very end of the competition, they said, oh, by the way, what was in the tent? And it's kind of related to that. But you mentioned something called flash recognition on this. Yeah. Would you mind telling me a bit more about that? Sure. That's, uh, that was one of the ones from my, um, uh, my historical studies. It's, uh, it, it's a little bit involved, but I, I think it's worthwhile. So one of the first classes that I was assigned at Fort Bragg was teaching Kim's game, oddly enough, which is which is how I was able to find out why it's called Kim's game. I I was uh, uh, I used to be a member of what was called the Police Marksman Association, and I got my uh, I got my monthly copy of the Police Marksman, 
and I had an article in there about the Indiana Police Acad- State Police Academy had instituted this program called Flash Recognition. And it turns out that this was a program that originally started in World War II with the Navy. Because at the beginning of the war, there was a lot of friendly fire incidents. And they were doing this, uh, they used a system that was called WEFT, which was uh, different categories of wings, engine, fuselage, and tail. And basically, GIs being GIs, you know, they changed the acronym to it's actually wrong every freaking time. Okay. <laughs> so uh, they were looking for a means to, uh, they're looking for, you know, something to replace it. And they heard about the research that was being done by this professor named uh, Samuel Renshaw in Ohio State University. He'd come up with this, uh, he'd come up with, he'd been studying the use of this device called a tachistoscope, which just imagine a camera shutter in front of a slide projector. And he found out that by uh, flashing strings of numbers, starting off with strings of numbers at people at speeds of like one one hundredth of a second, you were actually training, you were conditioning people, you were training and conditioning them to see more and see faster. And, you know, they were able to do this in a measured way because the thing is, it's like if you, you flash a slide up there and then people have to write down what they saw, you know, hey, you know what was on the slide, you were able to grade their papers, people can see whether they're making progress or not. So the Navy set up a, uh, an air, a recognition instructor course at Ohio State. And eventually there was a recognition instructor officer on, uh, you know, every major ship in World War II. Off at one of the naval officers that went through this was a naval reservist by the name of Rollin Soule, who happened to be a uh, police officer. And uh, he, he served his time. And uh, when he got back to the States, he started using the uh, flash recognition principles that he'd learned to train the other members of his department. And then he wound up becoming a professor of uh, forensic technology and uh, tool mark examina- examinations. And uh, he started using this, uh, this method in his classes. So one of his students uh, eventually became uh, the director of the Indiana State Police Academy, and he brought Professor Soul in, and they set up a uh, flash recognition program in their academy. And what wound up happening is, is that they had like a 300% increase in uh, on-site arrests from graduates of the school. So I went ahead and uh, I contacted Professor Soul and I contacted Indiana and both of them were gracious enough to work with me, and um, I eventually got trained as a flash recognition instructor. As near as I can figure, I'm like the last of the flash recognition instructors. But uh, I've got all of the World War II material. I've got the lesson plans and the materials and all this stuff, and I'm hoping that this can be the subject of my next book because it doesn't just work for sniping. It works for any job where you're using your eyes. Yeah, that power of observation. Exactly. So when I was in Germany, you know, when I was the master sniper, I was asked to put on an in-house sniper school. so We didn't have to send guys to the States. So I was able to uh, design my own curriculum 
cleverly insert the, inserted 30 hours of flash recognition training into it because nobody knew any better. So I ran a, I finally got to run a sniper school with um, uh, a flash recognition program based off of the World War II program. Couldn't believe the results. The best example was we had, um, this is going to be hard to relate, this is going to be hard to relate to, but the, the best guy in the class, at the end, he was like doing, he was able to see a 10 digit number at one one hundredth of a second and record it. Wow. And just to give you an idea why it's a, a one one hundredth of a second, an a typical uh, human eye blink is one quarter of a second. That's impressive. That's a that's that's like beyond photographic memory at that point. Right. But then the thing is, it's like, okay, so what do you do with it? Well, see, with the numbers, then you transition over to pictures. You're basically asking your visual, you know, you're asking your visual center, hey, I want you to see like this now. With what we now know about the neuroplasticity of the brain, you know, within limits, your brain can go, oh, okay, you know, you want me to accommodate this? Sure. All you had to do was ask. Right. Well, well, John, I have only a couple of things left. So if you have a couple more minutes, uh, one of the of things course. I did is I, I, I let a lot of my subscribers know ahead of time that I was going to be talking to you. And I asked if they had any questions. Oh, okay, great. So uh, I picked three that I, that I would like to, to kind of ping you with. So the first one is uh, in the book, you mentioned that one of the best ways to learn marksmanship is to practice the standing or offhand position. So um, that's obviously one of the hardest ones to do, which is why it's valuable to practice it. But do you have any tips for the most efficient way to practice your standing? Uh, the best way to practice your standing is um, there's actually, there's actually uh, uh, two things that I recommend. Now, if you're doing it with iron sights, and uh, I didn't come up with this one. I, I learned this one from, uh, I learned this one, from uh, one of my bosses at the Fort Bragg Sniper School, Rick Boucher. Who's, who's actually a legend in the business. But uh, when we were doing, uh, we, we used to do standing offhand with M14s with iron sights. And one of the things that he recommended is that you stand in front of a mirror and you basically, uh, you aim at yourself in the mirror from standing offhand. Now, this only works with iron sights because if you if you try this with a scope, you know, you, you can't focus your scope to like, you know, three feet in front of you. So this, this is an iron sight thing. And then you basically dry fire, you dry fire into a mirror, of course, after observing all safety precautions. I say that, you know, just to preclude anybody, you know, angrily calling me saying, I shot my mirror because of you. Okay. Um, so the thing is, see, the biggest, because the biggest thing about that is, is, you know, everybody talks about the need for dry fire. But dry fire without feedback can only take you so far. Because if you don't know that you're doing something wrong with the trigger, additional dry fire is just going to ingrain that into your nervous system. Right. So you can actually, you know, it, people don't realize that, you know, it, it's not a question of, you know, just practice, practice, practice. You have to practice correctly and you have to get feedback from the practice. See, because that comes back to that. You know, that comes back to that delay of consequence, because you can also look at that as a delay of feedback. So right. dry firing with, with iron sights, dry firing into a mirror 
And then that way you can find out if, you know, you're, you know, you're snatching the trigger. Okay. Because that's, that's one of the big, see, the reason why the, the standing offhand is the, you know, the, the benchmark is because, you know, when it comes to the trigger control, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just you and the rifle. I mean, there's, there's like nothing else supporting the rifle. So any mistakes are going to be amplified and any mistakes that you correct on the standing offhand are going to be that much less when you go into a supported position. Okay. And then the other way is, uh, you know, when you're practicing, one of the best things to do and, um, is, is basically get yourself a, uh, a good grade, uh, pellet rifle with either iron sights or a scope on it and get yourself a, uh, get yourself a 22 caliber, uh, bullet trap, not a, not an air rifle pellet trap. And, um, and just go ahead and, uh, uh, you know, practice your practice firing your standing offhand with the pellet rifle. One of the other one of the other NCOICs at Fort Bragg, uh, the late Al Davis, pointed out that you know for the cost of a, you know for the cost of a case of uh, uh, sniper ammo, you could buy a you know you could buy a fifty five gallon drum of air rifle pellets. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. And, um, so, and then once again, you're, you're getting feedback saying, mm -hmm. because it's like you yeah. fire, you know, you fire the, you know, one shot, you know, you got, you know, you got the target, you know, series of bullseyes, you fire one shot at each bullseye. And then right. there's, you know, once again, there's your feedback. Right. The target doesn't lie. Right. So, uh, actually, this is a kind of a follow-up question to that one. Is uh, sure. you know, there was a discussion recently on on the website about uh, standards and kind of what people's standards are. And one of the ones that came up was that uh, at a minimum, someone should be able to do a four four minutes of angle from from any position, including standing. Do you think that's a is that a fair assessment for a good standing position? Well, no, you'd have to. Uh, but the thing is, that's one of those things where um, you know I, I would have to see. You know, whenever somebody comes up with something like that, I I always have to ask, um, how'd you come up with that? Because, uh, you know, I mentioned Simpsons Simpsons laws earlier in this, and the most famous Simpsons law is if I can't show you the math, it's just my opinion. Okay, and Amen. basically that goes back to that goes back to Fort Bragg because I would complain about something that was in the curriculum, and the common refrain was, well, that's just your opinion. I was like, oh, okay, okay, I, I see how this is going. All right. So the thing is, that's why I became, that's why I became self-taught in uh, statistical theory, so that I I wouldn't lose arguments anymore. So it's not it's not a question of, you know, well, this isn't my opinion. It's like if you want to prove me wrong, you got to start with two plus two doesn't equal four. Okay, and then, you know, we can go from there. Because the thing is, it's like, okay, so why is it four minutes of angle? I mean, why isn't it three and a half? Why isn't it five minutes of angle? Um, and then, if, like, if we're talking in a sniper context, because if there's a, you know, if there's a scientific basis for that, then I'm all for it. But if, you know, I, I often describe, you know, I often describe a scenario of too many sniper schools 
are developed by a bunch of guys sitting around the Cracker Barrel going, hey, what should we teach? I don't know. What do you think we should teach? Okay. Well, what do you think the standard should be? I don't know. What do you think the standard should be? That kind of thing. Mm. Okay. So the closest I come to uh, the closest I come to wound ballistics in uh, the Foundations book is, you know, the standards are based off of a four-inch circular target. Okay. Because that represents the that represents the cranial vault on a human being. Now the thing is. You know, that four inches, yeah, that's four minutes of angle at 100 yards. Right. Okay? But that's two minutes of angle at 200 yards. Right. All right? So, you know, the thing is, it's like the, you know, when you when you divide, define standards in terms of minute of angle, that's like you're saying the target's going to get bigger the farther away it gets. And human beings don't do that. Right. See what I'm saying? Absolutely. So if you want to so define a, a target, so you define a target in terms of in, in terms of inches, okay? So like, you know, talking about regular rifle marksmanship, you know, an E-type silhouette or what cops call bobbers is supposed to represent a kneeling man. And, you know, using uh, you know, using non-metric units, I mean it's 40 inches high by 19 inches across. Now, it's that same dimension whether it's 25 meters in front of you or it's 300 meters away from you, okay? But the minute of angle is going to change. So that's why, right. to me, it doesn't make any sense to define your target as minute of angle. Okay. So that's a really good point. You're saying for really good training then, what you should be able to do is say, you want to be able to hit this size target at this distance. Uh, yeah, under these conditions, yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah, under okay. under right conditions and you know. Right. Okay. Well, well, then it comes down to well, is it stationary? Is it moving? So you know, for me, you know, you know, my you know my development of standards is is pretty straightforward. You define what the target is, and once you've defined that target, you work backwards from there with what it takes in order to be able to engage that target successfully. Right. So it's almost like the. Uh... Uh, seven habits, right? Start with the end in mind. Yeah. Okay. So I actually had a second question then. Uh, also, this was a sure. reader question, but uh, you mentioned ballistics. And I know this is, you know, in the concept of marksmanship and things, gear questions are always kind of like, oh, that's cool. But so this is kind of one of these myths or myths or fact that kind of come around a lot. But is it true or baloney that a bullet settles in flight? You know, if it, once it's been fired and it kind of goes through, it stable, does it stabilize the further it goes? Uh, bullets, uh, um, bullets do become more stable the further they go. And the reason this happens is, is that, you know, you have to understand that, um, there, there's an ideal, there's an ideal spin rate, but a lot of it is dependent on, you know, there's the velocity, you know, a, a number of other factors, basically, you know, without the, you know, without the correct amount of spin, the bullet wants to swap ends in flight because it's actually more, it's more stable. It's more stable going base first with the pointed end facing backwards. Right. Yeah. That's the whole, the center of gravity center of pressure problem. Correct. Now, um, to really get, to really get in depth on this, the best guy, the the guy that's done the best work on this is uh, Brian Litz. I don't know if you have, 
uh, any of his books. I, I don't. I know I need to get a couple. I've, I've done a lot of for one of my articles on twist rate and stuff. I did. I referenced him quite a bit, but it was mostly through what else he's published. Yeah, the guy. The guy's a genuine rocket scientist. Okay, and um, uh, and uh, he's uh, he's one of the he's one of the people that I recommend uh, when it comes to uh, you know when it comes to you know being intelligent but intelligent about ballistics. But anyway, the the simple explanation of why the why this is so. If a bullet is overstabilized, okay, well, first of all, so if we start out, if we look at a bullet that's understabilized, basically it's going to swap ends and start to tumble as it's heading downrange. If we have one that's overstabilized, imagine the, imagine the curve of the trajectory of the bullet as it's headed for the target, okay? So it launches up into the air. It reaches the top of the trajectory, and then it, you know, points its points its tip down and hits the target. Hopefully, right? Right. You yep, with me so, so far? far? Okay. Yeah. All right. So, if a bullet is overstabilized, it's it goes pointed up on the ascending, you know, ascending branch of the trajectory. But when it reaches the top of the trajectory, the point is still pointed in the original direction and it winds up causing a keyhole when it hits the target sideways hmm. because the point doesn't follow the trajectory as it goes down into the target. Okay. That's overstabilized. Okay. Okay. So most bullets uh, have to start out with some level of understabilization because what happens is because of uh, because of aerodynamic drag, you know, the bullet is traveling slower when it hits the target than when it left the right. muzzle. Okay. Everybody knows that. But the thing is, because there's uh, less friction, uh, there, there's less of an effective friction on the rotation of the bullet caused by the rifling in the barrel. So as the, as the bullet velocity slows down, it's still spinning at approximately the same rate as when it left the muzzle. So what happens is, is that the farther out it goes, it's spinning, you know, basically it, it's spinning for a much faster bullet. And as it's slowing down, it requires less spin. So it's becoming, uh, it's becoming more stabilized the further down it goes. That's, that does. That's very interesting. So thank you for answering that one. All right. And then last question from reader, you know, we've seen a lot of progress in, and I wouldn't even say it's progress because really it's going back and using the same kind of cartridges that we've done before. So like, you know, six, five Creedmoor is suddenly getting popular, but that's not that different from six, five Swede. Right. Right. But, um, where do you think, uh, two, two, four Valkyrie is going to fit into all this? Is that going to be kind of the new hotness or is that just going to be kind of another passing fad? You know, uh, in all honesty, I really don't follow the, um, I really don't worry too much about the caliber wars, <laughs> you know, because the thing is, it's like, see, my, my approach to the job is, is unlike a lot of people that pay lip service with, you know, slogans that look good on a coffee cup, like, you know, people, not te pe people, not technology. I mean, I, I actually, I actually believe in the human factor above everything else. Um, I'm more into the training of the sniper. So it's so, a, uh, yeah, it's the skill set. Yeah. 
So, um, you know, uh, a number of years ago, I, in fact, I, I think I sent you the article. There was a, um, there was an article by this Australian college professor in Detonator magazine and uh, talking about the scourge of sniper rifle availability in the United States. Yeah. And, um, and basically in, you know, in my rebuttal, it's like, see, to me, the definition of a sniper, you know, because you ask most people, what's the definition of a sniper rifle? Oh, well, you know, I mean, you know, scoped and, you know, it, it shoots this group and, you know, it's like, no, man, that's the rifle that a sniper is using. Okay. A sniper rifle is the rifle that a sniper happens to be using at the time. For me, it's all about the sniper. And this is what, you know, because you see all the, you know, you basically see all the money and the soul searching that's being spent by the military on, oh, God, you know, what, what new caliber are we going to use? And, you know, what rifle is going to fire it? And what about the scope that's going to enable us to shoot around corners someday and everything else? And it's like, you know, I just wish a fraction of that money would go to improving the training of snipers. Uh, absolutely agree. I think that's I think that's where most people fall short, right? Is everybody wants to spend it's easy to spend money on gear and it's, it's harder to put in the time and work yeah. to actually get the skill set. Yeah, so, you know, for me, it's like, you know, I you know, I, I you know, I'm sorry to, you know, to to blow off answering the question. But to me, it's, you know, I, I've always believed in the philosophy that, you know, the, the man who works with a stick is going to defeat the man who plays with a sword. Yeah. I think that's a really good, a really good way to put it. And then actually gets into my last question. So this is my kind of last rapid fire one, which is, uh, sure. you know, I, I, I kind of ask this to everybody, but it's, you know, in the whole context of, of on culture today, especially from you know the civilian side of things, what is the one thing you wish people would stop doing? Uh, I mean, I, I wish they would stop chasing the latest piece of technology. I wish that they would. Uh, I wish that they would maximize their capabilities with what they have before they, uh, you know, before they complain that they have to have uh, the the next the next piece of wonder gear. I think that is a fantastic answer. Thank you. Thank you. John, this has been a, a, a very interesting conversation. I hope we can do it again. Um, I have so many more questions that have come up. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd, look forward, I'd look forward to that. So um, in the meantime, though, where can people find you? Um, I live down in uh, Georgia, uh, actually in uh, um, I'm northwest of Atlanta. I have a... Uh, I have a consulting company that's listed on LinkedIn. Uh, it's the Simpsonian Institute. I uh, I do consulting and uh, train and available for training. Um, you know, lately I've been uh, you know working on getting the word out on the on the latest book, and um, um, you know, basically uh, available to uh, help people out. I. Like I said, if um, if somebody wants to contact me about, you know, if somebody has a question about marksmanship, I mean, that's one thing. But I, I just need to give people fair warning. Um, if you're looking for something on sniping and you're not a, you know, a law enforcement officer or a member of the military, then uh, I really can't help you. Got it. 
All right, John. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you again very much. And I look forward to the next time we can talk. All right, guys, let's talk about this episode. This was a long one, right? There was a lot of information that we covered, starting off with just what is John's background and how did he get to becoming a sniper and then later a sniper instructor? That was like the first 30 minutes of it. And then we kind of started talking about a lot of the skills and things he's observed and got to why he wrote the book, which I reviewed on the website. And then we kind of branched off into some of the ancillary skills that are important. So I took a bunch of notes and uh, this is going to be a little recap of it. So here's a key takeaways. Number one, don't assume that someone's position means they are automatically going to be competent. This is not meant to be a dig on law enforcement officers or military members, but realize that a lot of people may be put in a position where they don't actually have the expertise. Next, you don't take a geometry test to learn how to do geometry. So in the same way, you don't take a marksmanship qualification in order to learn marksmanship. You have to practice those skills individually and build them up so then you are able to pass that qualification. The measurement is not the way you practice, right? You practice so you can pass the measurement, but the skills you use to pass the measurement are, are universal. Also important in this one was realizing that you shouldn't reinvent the wheel unless you've mastered the topic. Now, I'm going to have a clip I'm going to play for you guys. When you're trying to come up with some kind of new rifle position, you know, or you're trying to improve what I'm teaching you, just keep in mind, people have been doing this for an extremely long time. All right, now remember the context in that quote was that in his book, John actually used 1889 marksmanship manuals with line-drawn diagrams showing how to do these positions, and they are exactly the same as they are today. They are, there is nothing different about them, but people seem to want to reinvent the wheel so often that it seems like well, there's a newer, better way to do this so I can put my name on a book. The reality is we know how to do this. It's a matter of being good at what we already know. And then maybe you can add tweaks. Too many people before they even master the old technique, the classic way of doing it, are trying to make their own tweaks and modifications to make it theirs. And those tweaks aren't necessarily better. Now on that point, John had a really good segue into how to measure performance. Not so much from a scoring standpoint, but are you doing this correctly? John and I are both familiar with points of performance from the military. Which means if I give you a task, I have a checklist of objective criteria that outlines did you do part A, part B, part C, part C. Those are observable measures. Right? And if you're able to do all of the measures correctly, then you will pass the assessment. Right? In his case, he talked about airborne school, but marksmanship can work the same way. Are you taking the correct position? Is your foot aligned the right way? Is your elbow not rolling off your knee because you're not using the tricep? Right? So when we start talking about measurements, we want to do points of performance, very objective criteria. And then when it came to learning those new items, one of the things that John's very adamant about and I agree with is that you shouldn't try to learn from bad examples. Put it another way, we don't teach people how to fall out of airplanes by showing them the wrong way to do it, right? So this is a psychological principle where people will when you show them the wrong way to do things, they're going to remember that and they're going to copy it. So the more time you spend watching good examples of marksmanship and talking to those who do it correctly, the more likely you're going to mirror that behavior and adopt it for yourself. And then going on with that, doing things correctly often involves more than just sitting behind the rifle. All right, John talked about that this is a very physical job. You know, it's, it's not uncommon for police snipers to have to run up three or four flights of stairs with all of the gear, get to a window, line up, and take a shot in a short amount of time. 
If you can't control your heart rate because you're in bad shape or you just can't get up the stairs in time, you're going to have problems, right? So you have to be mindful of your physical fitness levels. This is not just about shooting. Now, moving on from that, we talked a little bit more about all the additional skills that go into being a good sniper. But really, I think these are good marksmen. So out of this interview, I'm going to go ahead and highlight this, which is our on-target clip of the day. Being sneaky as a sniper comes first before everything else. And it sounds like a small thing, but, you know, it's, um, you know, basically, you know, survival is made up of a whole bunch of small things to add up to one large thing. Survival, success, is a whole lot of small things that add up together to make a larger whole. That's survival. So what are those additional skills? The last 20 minutes or so of this interview, we started getting into some of the other things we need to be aware of. So things like your memory. You know, snipers have to be able to have a good flash memory. So we talked a lot about flash memory and flash recognition as a program where we can train people to see things faster and remember what they were. Part of that was also a game. I thought this was really interesting is that if you've ever heard of Kim's game, which I taught for years while I was in the military, everybody said that, oh, this means keep in mind, K-I-M. But John pointed out, in fact, that's actually from Rudyard Kipling, that Kipling had a character named Kim O'Hara, who is in India, and the British Secret Service recruited him to help with the resistance fighters. And part of his training was to look at a tray, and they would uncover the tray with gems on it, cover it again, and he had to tell them the value and what was there. Excuse me. He had to tell them what was there and what the value was. So now you know. And I'm going to make sure I'm going to put a link to a picture of that page from, from the 1908 Boy Scout Handbook which talks about the origins of Kim's game. Lastly, in this, in this episode, we got to a couple questions about the best way to practice dry fire. And John offered two examples. The first one was to use iron sights and stand in front of a mirror. When you stand in front of the mirror and aim at yourself, of course, unloaded, follow all safety procedures, but you are able to see feedback, which is very important. When you are aiming at yourself, you'll be able to see when you're moving at what point. Because just doing dry fire without feedback is not as valuable is if you actually have some kind of feedback to tell you how you did. The other tip he gave was to use a 22 pellet rifle, right? Where you air power pellet rifle, you can get a ton of projectiles and practice for years on the cost of one case of precision rifle ammo. And lastly, I'm going to go ahead and leave you guys with one more quote. I didn't record this one. I'll put it in the show notes on the page. But the man who works with a stick is going to defeat the man who plays with a sword. So keep that in mind, that at the end of the day, how much work you put into something is more important than having the latest and greatest. All right, It's about putting the effort and time to become the master of your tool. All right, guys, that's going to about wrap it up for me. I want to say thanks again for joining us. Hope you had a great day. Don't forget to come by the site, Everyday Marksman CO. Make sure you leave a review. Give me five stars, four stars, three stars, or just leave a review. Let me know what you think. Come by the site, subscribe. I'll talk to you next time.